Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, O Christ. Let's pray. Father, turn our hearts and minds toward you as we open your word. Strengthen our weak faith. Grow us in grace. And deepen our trust and rest in Jesus today. We ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, this morning's text is really a, it's really a 2.0 of the section right before it. So to look at some more of the particulars of that text, um, you can go back and listen to that sermon in our uh, online archive on our website. I'm going to look at kind of a different contour uh, and show you some different aspects at play this morning. Mark's gospel, particularly in the beginning chapters, focuses on several conflicts with the Pharisees, five actually, Um, which the Pharisees, you may know, are the most religious group in Israel at the time. The conflicts with the Pharisees actually pick up on one of the main thrusts of the Old Testament moving into the New. And the thrust is this. It's actually, it's a tension, you know, which all good stories have a good tension uh, unfolding before us through the story. What's driving the story of the Bible is how is God going to relate to humanity? Through the story of the Bible, we see God enter into relationship with humanity through what we call covenants. Now, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two parties. It's a relationship bound with promises. It's like a marriage vow. You enter into a covenant, a relationship with your spouse through the promises that you make to one another. So God establishes these promises But there's a tension, you see. There's a tension. In one place, God promises what he says in Jeremiah chapter 30. He says, you shall be my people and I will be your God. God binds himself to his people unconditionally, a completely loving promise, you see. But in another place, he'll say what he says in Judges chapter 2. Because this people, referring to Israel, have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. You see, that's a promise completely centered on the holiness of God. It's a promise of curse. You see the tension here? The tension is, is God's covenant going to center on his love or his holiness? Really, what's driving the Old Testament story? Is the covenant conditional or unconditional? But before I get going too much, uh, three things we'll look at this morning. Pharisee, lordship, and grace. So first, Pharisee. 
Pharisees are a religious group whose entire identity depends upon their obedience as the way to earn God's approval. Now, this is what the German reformer Martin Luther, he simply called this legalism. Uh, Meaning, relying on our own merits to gain God's approval. It's religion that says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Now, let me explain the biblical background here uh, a little bit. In the Old Testament, God gives Israel his law. Think the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. Think all the laws in books like Leviticus. There are actually 613 total laws in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, around the Ten Commandments. And Israel was commanded to keep the whole law, the uh, three aspects of the law, the civil, how they are to be governed, the ceremonial, how they are to worship, and the moral law, the universal human code of morality. They're to uphold and keep every aspect of it. The law was really the means for Israel to be governed by God himself and to orient themselves around God's purposes and concerns, not merely for themselves, but also for the entire world. You see, in the law of Torah, God will give Israel blessing and life because it was their guide for Israel to enter into the land he had promised them and how, when they got there, to live as a faithful people. See, Israel's identity is meant to be oriented toward God and centered upon his purposes for the world. This is the first paradigm unfolding throughout the Old Testament. That after Israel is delivered out of bondage in Egypt, God delivers his people from slavery to bring them into the promised land in Canaan. Israel is delivered from Egypt as a covenant people to be ambassadors in the world, called now to extend God's peace to the nations as a beacon of light in darkness and as preserving salt in decaying and dying cultures. Their purpose, there is purpose to their liberation. There is purpose for them, for the world in their deliverance. Their own deliverance was meant to be now motivation for them to live out of gratitude, to keep covenant with God, to be a faithful people to him and whose entire existence was oriented around God's very concerns for the entire world. This is why you see in the prefaces of many of the Old Testament law sections a reiteration of the Exodus story. God will say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, before the law is given. This is Israel's identity. The law, you see, was meant to be a means of orienting and reorienting Israel's life around God's kingdom and kingship, centered upon his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his love, and his righteousness. And their exodus, their deliverance, is their central identity. Delivered from slavery to serve their true Lord and their covenant God. They are to be distinguished from the rest of the world now, as the King James Version uh, puts it the best way in Deuteronomy 14, as a peculiar people. 
the promised land of Canaan and the subsequent kingdom orientation that Israel was intended to be, um, to fulfill, they are intended to be the ideal nation of peace and flourishing in the world, not merely for themselves, but also for the surrounding nations. The problem, of course, is whether Israel will keep covenants or not. And of course, they don't. The Old Testament narrative is carried by this tension of covenant keeping. With judge after judge, king after king, prophet after prophet, reorienting, often quite poorly, um, Israel toward God's law again, toward his kingdom, toward a kingdom centrality, and toward God's peace for Israel and for subsequently the nations. But after Israel continues to be lawbreakers time and time again, God finally sends them out of the promised land and into exile, which is the second main paradigm we see throughout the Old Testament. And after 70 years in exile, God brings Israel back into Jerusalem, back into the promised land, but again, they are overtaken. And we see prophets like Isaiah looking forward to a day when Israel will be brought into a true and better promised land, when a restorer from within Israel will deliver them from their enemies and bless them in the land and give them the peace and security and rest that God has promised to them. The Old Testament longs for the future kingdom and the king of the kingdom of Israel when it will finally be established fully. You see the narrative of the Old Testament, how it unfolds. The Pharisees are the keepers of the law. Because in Israel's law breaking, they've been exiled under the Babylonians. They've been destroyed by the Assyrians. And eventually they come to be occupied by the Roman Empire, their very enemies. See, the physical promised land is compromised. But the Pharisees are seeking to regain it through strict observance to Torah. This is the Pharisees' entire identity, to obey and be accepted. They even expand, actually, God's law with extra-biblical regulations around the Torah to keep it, because uh, in order to try to keep it, to regain um, a vision of the promised land for Israel again. You see, if you rely upon uh, keeping the law, upon doing works in order to earn approval, you have to be sure that you can actually do what you're supposed to be doing. So, so the Pharisees, they put extra biblical regulations around God's law. They manipulate it to ensure that they can actually keep it in their own minds. You see, the what's the problem with religion like this? The problem is the Pharisees, they use God's law ultimately to serve themselves. Their relationship with God is one that is completely transactional. If we do X, God will owe us. The Pharisees, they don't have a true kingdom of God orientation. They have a privatized promised land vision centered upon ultimately themselves. You see, the problem with that is it turns you away 
from anything that you perceive to be a threat or dislocate your private promised land vision. Religion like that makes you cruel towards ultimately what you fear, which is the loss of your own promised land. Do you see how the economy of the the Pharisees works? Do you see how legalism works? It centers upon a private and personal vision of promised land. That kind of self-focused existence. It excludes, by nature, what doesn't fit into it. It's naturally cruel and exclusionary and can never actually fulfill God's purposes for his people because it misses the way that God's kingdom actually begins to break into reality. This is what's playing in the background of Mark chapter 3. The Pharisees are missing God's kingdom because they're not only missing Israel's restorer, but they're missing the world's redeemer. They use God's law to regain a personal promised land vision, which is naturally exclusive to those who are by nature dislocated from, that, from it, which, is, uh, which could be ethnic dislocation, economic, biological, physical. In other words, God's kingdom is just too big for the Pharisees. But Jesus, Jesus is beginning a new covenant as the kingdom, the kingdom of God, breaks into reality now through his earthly ministry. This is what the author of uh, Hebrews' main point is, is that Jesus is the true and better Adam, the true and better humanity, the true and better Moses, the true and better Israel, prophet, priest, sacrifice, temple, king. Jesus is making the religion of the Pharisees obsolete. And the kingdom, the kingdom of God is now breaking into reality. So when Jesus arrives in the synagogue in Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees are watching him. Will he break Torah? Will he transgress one of Israel's most sacred identifying markers, the Sabbath? Will Jesus keep Israel out of the promised land. But Jesus is going to demonstrate the true nature of the kingdom of God. Second thing, lordship. So while in the synagogue, which is of course the place where the Jewish people would worship on the Sabbath, which at this time would have been Saturday, Jesus sees a man with a withered hand. Remember, the Sabbath set Israel apart from the other nations as they ceased from all their work, all their trade. They worshipped in particular ways and they rested. You see, the Sabbath was a sign for, of Israel's allegiance to the God of the universe who patterns for them what a Sabbath rhythm of work and rest looks like. God patterns in the creation narrative of Genesis six days of work and one day of rest. And the Sabbath, Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, is made for man. It's made to serve us. But legalism isn't really concerned with God's pattern or God's kingdom. It's concerned with our own private patterns and private promised lands. So the way Mark writes this is fascinating. All of this is playing in the background, of course, in this text. 
And as Jesus calls the man, the text literally says he calls the man to the center of the synagogue. And he asks the Pharisees a question, which of course is Jesus' favorite way of handling conflict. He says, is it lawful, according to Torah, on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? What is Jesus really asking? He's asking the Pharisees, is showing mercy allowed on the Sabbath, in your view? Is it a violation of the Sabbath to restore? Or is it actually a violation to refuse mercy? You see, Jesus is raising the stakes. He's saying, essentially, look at the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. That's not merely a passive command. There is no room for neutrality in it. If you see someone whose life is at risk and you can't help them, you are liable for murder if you refuse them. You see, it was permissible to save someone's life on the Sabbath if they were in great danger and would have died otherwise. If they, uh, if they weren't about to die, then something needed to wait until the next day. But Jesus is raising this healing to a level of life or death. You, you have to see what Jesus is doing here. He's demonstrating his own lordship over the Sabbath, over Torah, by calling the man with the withered hand to himself, to bring him to himself so that he may restore him because Jesus is beginning to break God's kingdom into reality now. Jesus is saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am Lord of Torah because I am the Sabbath. I am Torah, the kingdom. The kingdom is breaking in. How? In a person. In a person. Jesus is breaking in God's kingdom now. He is the restorer. He's the redeemer. The Sabbath, he's saying, is here now. You have to see this, how Jesus talks about himself to understand who he is and to understand the Gospels. Jesus is demonstrating the true intention and nature of the Sabbath, which ultimately is restoration. Look at verse 5. He's demonstrating his lordship over the Sabbath by not breaking it, but by fulfilling it. You see, the Sabbath was meant to restore the withered. It's meant to fill the empty. It's meant to renew the defeated. Jesus is saying, and he's showing, I am the Sabbath. I am not only your source of rest, but I am your rest. Because the kingdom is beginning to break into reality, not through religion, but through a person. And the Pharisees, of course, are enraged by this. They are angry. So angry, in fact, that they go out and conspire to kill Jesus with the Herodians. And the Herodians are a political group that who uh, they pledge their allegiance to the dynasty of Herod, the same Herod and his sons who try to kill Jesus at his birth. They go in to, uh, to countries and they occupy and they, they uh, dispel whatever culture is there and replace it with Greek culture. These are the enemies to the Jews, but because of their anger, they seek out their own enemies to try and end Jesus because they would rather protect themselves. 
Do you see the hypocrisy unfolding here? Jesus is saying that the intent of the Sabbath is to restore and to bring life. But the Pharisees conspire to kill and diminish to the point where they pledge their allegiance to an earthly kingdom and an earthly Lord. You see how the text is showing us how legalism ultimately works? The man is brought in and he's restored. While the Pharisees, they go out and destroy. The man reaches out in faith to Jesus while the Pharisees conspire against him to cut him off. Jesus gives life, but the Pharisees seek death. The Pharisees drive out those that we fear and perceive to be threats, but Jesus brings in those we are called to love beyond our capacities as a fulfillment of who God's people have always been meant, uh, have always meant to be in the world as God's kingdom expands beyond the ethnic borders of Israel to the Gentiles. Do you see this? The dynamic between Jesus and the Pharisees is exposing the true Lord of our own hearts. Friend, is your privatized vision of the promised land driving you to pledge allegiance to earthly lords and earthly kingdoms rather than the true Lord? Is your vision of the promised land cutting off those you are called to love beyond your capacity as the extension of God's peace going out in the world through you? Because you just fear, you fear what it may cost you. You see, God is exposing the other lords that we serve when he shows us the true nature of his kingdom. Our own Pharisaism is exposed when those that our hearts are actually shriveled toward are called into the kingdom and then we cast judgment against them. We are all, see, we are all Pharisees deep down. It's okay, we're all Pharisees deep down. Conservatives will look down at progressives because they don't have traditional values like us. Progressives just look down on conservatives. We all are looking down on someone. But without a grace-filled heart being soaked in the very love of God, without a gospel-centered recalibration resting not in our works, not in our emotional, spiritual experiences, not in the drama of our conversion experience even. All are just forms of works righteousness. But resting in a person, the person of Jesus, our hearts, like the Pharisees, will always remain shriveled. We will always cut other people out. You see, legalism misses the kingdom of God breaking into this world and the mercy and peace of God being extended even to those that are on the fringes of it, even enemies. You see, what is the real stumbling block for the legalist? Final thing, grace. Grace is the stumbling block for the legalist. Because legalism says, I can heal myself through my obedience. I can make myself whole. I can restore myself by keeping the law because I've made sure that the bar is set to a level where I can keep it. And others will always be cut off. I can merit God's approval. I obey, therefore I am accepted. But grace says, the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. And Jesus comes and he makes legalism. He makes religion 
makes earning God's approval completely obsolete. This is what Hebrews chapter 8 is showing us. Because he's come to completely fulfill every single word of Torah, Matthew 5, 17. He's come to fulfill every single shadow of the Old Testament, Hebrews chapter 3. He keeps covenant for humanity, for Israel, and gives us not a new set of religious codes, but a person. But a person who completely accepts us, not because of what we have done, but because of what he did. Jesus doesn't only demonstrate that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I am the Sabbath. Only he can give you, friend, rest underneath your rest. He gives us rest from the need to justify our existence. He gives us rest from having to merit God's approval or the approval of others. He gives us rest from what Luther simply called the heart's default mode, which is legalism. Always trying to gain God's approval. That's our default mode of the heart, Jeremiah 17. He gives us rest from what we call works righteousness, trying to merit God's favor by being perfectly holy. By fulfilling works for us so that we can experience the fullness of God's love. He not only keeps Sabbath, but Jesus fulfills it. He not only heals, he completely restores. He not only lets us take a day off, but he gives us an eternal rest by being our Sabbath. How? Look at verse 6. Verse 6 points towards the climax of Jesus' ministry. You see, Jesus... Jesus was a great teacher, but he can't just be a great teacher because he doesn't understand himself that way. You see, Jesus always has his death in view. He came to serve, but he also came to die. And Jesus is always talking about his own death, and his death is always at the forefront of his ministry. Why? Because in Jesus' death on the cross... In his being withered on the cross, you and I will be restored. He will be emptied so that we could be filled. He will be defeated so that we could be renewed. He will be conspired against and cast out and cut off so that we could come into the kingdom of God. And he does this through his death. Here's the essence of God's grace. It's first knowing that I cannot, I cannot heal myself. Our observance of either religious law or secular law, which they work the same way, by the way, uh, just being outraged at the right things, um, just signing on to the right causes, um, aligning with the right social context. See, we're all dependent on our social context to affirm us. Um, It's all the same. We just have to uh, to acknowledge none of that is going to earn us God's favor. But grace completely empties us of that kind of pretext. Because you can't merit your acceptance through obedience without ultimately becoming a Pharisee. You see, grace is first realizing that you desperately are seeking approval, but you never will be able to find it in earthly lords and in earthly kingdoms. You'll never be able to give it, to get it. But Jesus, Jesus gives you acceptance by doing what you and I never would be able to. 
He does good to us. He saves our life. He stretches out his hand to us so that we can be restored. And he does this by giving us not religion, but himself. He becomes our true and better Sabbath by giving us rest under our rest. Rest from the need to earn God's approval. You see, he is our promised land by bringing us into the fullness of salvation one day. Not by cutting off and excluding others, but by acknowledging that without Jesus doing what we never can, we will remain withered and empty and defeated always. But when we receive Jesus by faith, when we receive Jesus as a person and rest in him for our salvation alone because he's done what we can't and died the death we deserved, we find a true Sabbath rest and the promised land we long for and are searching for because he has searched for us and he's called us into his kingdom and we can have true restoration in him you see legalism says God is up there God is up there and this is the way that you can be accepted by him but Christianity says God came down God came down in a person who isn't just a way to God he's the way to God only Jesus gives us that kind of grace and acceptance only Jesus can give us true restoration, true Sabbath rest. Friend, trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. Let me pray. Father, give us rest beneath our rest. Empty us of our affinity with legalism. Empty us of ourselves. Call us now, call us again into the true rest that's only available through you, and by your gospel, Lord. Give us rest, Jesus, through your life and death for us. And give it to us by simple faith. We ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.